A TV programme, let's say it's a period drama, shows a stained glass window while you can hear hymns being sung. And then the camera pans down and you see a smartly dressed congregation wearily singing. And you see a woman who is singing while eyeing up her neighbour's hat. And you suspect she's going to turn out to be a snide gossip. And then round it turns to the vicar dressed in his fancy robes and you think, now he's going to turn out to be a crook. Why do I say that? Why do I put it so negatively? Well, isn't that exactly how it is portrayed on TV so often? The typical portrayal of Christianity is dead rituals followed by hypocrites. Yes, you're sure that woman's going to turn out to be a snide gossip and that vicar's going to turn out to be crooked. Dead rituals followed by religious hypocrites. Far from living power to change hearts and lives. But the message of Easter is Christianity is very much alive because it's all about and it's empowered by Jesus who is very much alive. And I want to see that Christianity is far from dead rituals for hypocrites. It's alive and it's heartfelt. And I want us to see that by considering a group who were there at that first Easter. I know they didn't know the word Easter back then. That's our name. We've made up for it. But they were there at that first Easter. They're ordinary people, easily overlooked. In fact, at the time, they were very much looked down on and even disbelieved. It's the women who cared about Jesus. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 27 and 28 to find out about these women there at that first Easter. Find out what was their response to what happened. Now, I say let's find out about these women, but you might wonder, why do I need to know about these women at Easter? The answer is you don't really. You don't. I'm just telling you about them so you get to know about someone you do need to know, and that's Jesus himself. In a sense, we're trying to see things through the eyes of the women because you don't need to know about them, but you need to see who they saw, Jesus himself. And the aim this morning is for Jesus himself to get to your heart. Christianity isn't a set of dead rituals for hypocrites, no. No, it's a message about Jesus himself that should get to our heart. And that's the aim this morning, that Jesus himself should get to our hearts. How did Jesus get to their hearts? Three ways I'm going to show you this morning. Three ways. The first is grief. What did their hearts feel? Their hearts felt grief, sadness. Let's just read chapter 27, verse 55 and 56 again. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. What did they see as they watched at that execution ground? What a grim place. Probably more blood fell there to the ground than rain in that place. What did they see? They saw soldiers. They saw soldiers driving in nails and heaving up a cross and splitting out clothes and then sitting down to watch. To them, the soldiers, it was just another day's work, executing just another criminal. They'd done it hundreds of times before. To the women, 
This was their friend. This was their teacher. This is the one who had cared for them and been kind to them. They saw the soldiers doing this to him. And then what else did they see? They saw a sign, a sarcastic sign over his head. It said, this is the king of the Jews. It had been put there by a cynical ruler who despised the Jews. And so he's saying, look, this is the sort of king the Jews have nailed to a cross. They saw people passing by and some standing around and staring. And they saw people who were mocking, save yourself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Come down from the cross now if you're the son of God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. What did they see? Well, next they saw nothing. Nothing. Because even though it was in the middle of the day, it went strangely dark and they could see nothing. But in the darkness, they heard a haunting cry coming from Jesus on that cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then another cry. And then he dies. There Jesus, who'd done so much for them, who was not only kind to them, he was, he was powerful. He was remarkable. He saved others. That The mocking cries were true. He saved others, but he couldn't save himself. And how lost they felt now they're without him. And now he's ended a failure. And all those words he spoke that they'd thought were true, all those claims about who he was, they've come to nothing. They're just hanging dead on a cross like a lump of meat. How is their life supposed to carry on? And so, of course, they felt grief. Can you feel something of their sadness? Should you feel their sadness? Should we today, on this day here, feel their sadness? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes. Because if this worst day of history, if this injustice, this suffering, this sacrifice doesn't move you and get to your heart, well, you either don't believe it, you think it's just a pack of fairy tales, or it's just become so familiar to you, it's become unreal to you. Yes, surely you must feel their grief if you believe that this is the truth. But no. No, we're not supposed to feel their grief in another sense. No, this isn't written in the Bible so we feel sorry for Jesus. That's not the purpose. I don't know if you remember in 2004, there was a film produced by Mel Gibson called The Passion of the Christ. It was about the suffering and the death of Jesus and the trial he went through. And it was, uh, it was a grim film. I, I've never seen it and I don't intend to ever see it because I suspect once you've seen it, you couldn't unsee it. So graphic. Uh, reviewers said it was the most violent film they'd ever watched. And I suspect those reviewers had watched a lot of violence on film. As it dwelt on the blood and war and the horror of the cross. And the Bible is so different, 
so different. It doesn't give tear-jerking details. Did you notice the description of the crucifixion that we read? Have a look. If you didn't notice it, it's there in verse 35. Oh, actually, we didn't read that, did we? We didn't read back that far. Chapter 27, verse 35. When they had crucified him. It's almost, by the way, he's been crucified and on it goes. When they had crucified him. No Mel Gibson style film. No description of the pain. It just skates over. When they had crucified him. While the actual description, the actual crucifixion is, is passed over a few brief words, what does Matthew and then Mark and Luke and John, what do they all concentrate on? What do they give verse after verse after verse detailing? Prophecies fulfilled. Old Testament pictures that Jesus was completing. Ways Jesus demonstrated his death was securing the forgiveness that we all need. Those are detailed in verse after verse, while the the actual physical aspects of the crucifixion just passed over in a brief phrase, when they had crucified him. You see, the emphasis given isn't to get us to feel sorry for him, it's to get us to feel confident in him. That's the aim. It is written not to move us to tears over a tragic failure, but to move us to trust in a completed plan. He'd done all that you and I need. Here is Jesus fulfilling prophecy. Here is Jesus defeating Satan. Here is Jesus paying our debt to God. Here is Jesus securing salvation for his people and dying Not with a last gasp, but with a victorious, it is finished. And the purpose is not to arouse grief in us. Not grief because of a tragic failure, no, but confidence in a completed plan. He's done all that you and I need so we can be forgiven if we trust him. You see, Jesus doesn't want you to feel sorry because of his death. He wants you to feel confident in his death because you see, you're a sinner and here's the saviour you need. If you're here wondering what Christianity is about, maybe you think, what is this Christianity? What are Christians? What are they all about? Well, here's the heart of it. And here's how you become a Christian. You see that you're a sinner. That's someone who's lived as if God isn't God. You've lived as if God doesn't rule. And you see, that makes me guilty. And I need someone to deal with that guilt. That makes something very wrong with me. And I need someone to change that. And this Jesus, he's the one. His death wasn't a tragic failure. It was a completed plan for people like you and me. You know, as Jesus went to get executed, there's a very um, strange and interesting incident that happened that illustrates this. There he was carrying his cross off to the execution ground and there were women who saw him on the way. And they cried as they saw this blood-stained, weak-looking man going to die. And we're not surprised. They cried as they saw him. Wouldn't you? I hope so. But Jesus said to them, don't cry for me. 
Don't cry for me, he said. Cry for yourselves. Why ever should they cry for themselves? Well, he said, because God is going to judge sin. And if you're not safely sheltering in Jesus, that punishment will be terrible for you. Cry for yourselves, he said, but be confident in me, confident in Jesus. Easter through the eyes of these women, what they saw moved their hearts to grief. But next, what they saw at the tomb moved their hearts to fear. Let's move on into chapter 28. What they saw at the cross moved their hearts to grief. What they saw at the tomb moved their hearts to fear. What did they see at the tomb? Not the resurrection. It's funny, isn't it? Did you think they'd see the resurrection? No, they didn't see the resurrection. The Gospels have no account of a spectacular rising out of the tomb. They just describe in hurried fashion an empty tomb found by a confused group of women who wonder what's going on. And it's women. Fancy that. Back in their day, women were not valid legal witnesses. In other words, the whole way it is written is not... What you would write if you were trying to persuade others of something you'd made up. If you're not a Christian, you need to realise this. The Bible's account of Jesus is not at all what you would expect from a made-up story. It has the features of an unexpected but honest eyewitness account. So instead of having a spectacular resurrection account, we have a group of women feeling timid but being so brave. You thought about how brave they were. They were going to the tomb of an executed criminal. That's a brave thing to do. They're feeling timid. And they get there. And the tomb is open. And their hearts must miss a beat. Who opens tombs? Who opens tombs? Grave robbers. Or could it be a conspiracy by the rulers up to something odd? And then they see an angel. And it's no surprise. Are you surprised that it says in verse 5, well, the angel says to them, do not be afraid. Why does the angel have to say, do not be afraid? Children, have you been in a school nativity play? I expect you have. And what do the angels look like? Oh, they look nice, don't they? Girls dressed in white sheets, basically. But angels were nothing like that. Children, I hope you know that. They're nothing like that. Fearsome beings. And if you thought of this, the Bible covers thousands of years of history, and yet appearances by angels are very, very few. The Bible doesn't lead us to expect angels appearing all the time. The Bible is not a book of fairy tales. No, appearances by angels are very, very few across thousands of years of history. And when they do come, it's because something big is happening. Something history-changing is happening. So this angel appears, and the women are told, Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay, they say, that's great, everything's fine now. Ah, we understand it all now. Yeah, three days ago our world turned upside down, now it's turned the right way up. Good, let's go home and have a cup of tea. No, no, because this didn't fit what they believed. You see, all these women were Jewish, and Jewish women believed in the resurrection, yes, but when the world ended, people would be raised from the dead. The Messiah especially would be raised from the dead when the world ended. And here they were, and look, the sun was still shining, and the 
wind was still blowing and the ground was still under their feet. It just didn't make sense. It didn't fit their expectations. So no wonder, verse 8, the women hurried away from the tomb afraid, afraid. And as they hurry away, who do they meet? Jesus himself. And does that remove their fear? No, because verse 10, he has to say to them, verse 10, do not be afraid. Why? Well, because meeting someone who three days ago you saw die and then you watched as he was buried, meeting him is going to make you afraid, isn't it? What is going on? Do you understand their fear? Should we feel their fear? Yes. Yes, we should feel their fear. We should feel their fear. Because this resurrection, defying the expectations of the time, recorded in ways that you just wouldn't if you were making it up, believed by thousands over the next couple of years, not disproved by the authorities who wanted to stamp it out but didn't manage, and still today withstanding attack. This resurrection says Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just another prophet. No. This resurrection declares him to be the son of God, the Lord with power. This resurrection says there is a God of death defying power and he's involved in this world. And what does that mean for us? Fear. Shouldn't that cause you to fear? Because it should make you stop and think. How have you lived? As if Jesus is Lord? Or as if you are Lord? This God of death-defying power, what has he seen in your life? What has he seen in your life? What has he seen in your thoughts? What does he think of you? Do you ask yourself that? It's the thing you must ask yourself. If there is a God of death-defying power, what does he think of me? You ask yourself that. And that's something to make you fear. Children, have you read the Narnia stories? You really should read the Narnia stories. You can watch the films as well, but the books are always better. And adults, have you read them? Because they're good for adults as well. Now, they've got this, the, the big character in the Narnia stories is this lion king called Aslan. And in the story of Prince Caspian, Aslan has not been seen for generations, for centuries he's not been seen. And most think he's just a myth, he's just a made-up story. And there's this dwarf called Trumpkin, just an ordinary person, leading an ordinary life. And like everyone else, he thinks, of course I don't believe in a lion king, of course I don't believe in that talking lion, ridiculous. And then Aslan arrives, and he meets Trumpkin face to face. And C.S. Lewis, who wrote these stories, he's such a good writer. As you read, you can almost feel Trumpkin melting with fear. Well, of course, he's meeting the king that he didn't believe in. And it should be that sort of moment for us when we realise the resurrection is true. That means Jesus is Lord and the God of the Bible is real. And you will answer... To him for your life. And so, yes, like those women, we should fear. But the empty tomb didn't just give the women fear. Here's the third thing. 
That Easter story should get to our hearts. Well, it's really Jesus should get to our hearts with grief, with fear, but lastly, with joy, with joy. Chapter 28, verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. Strange mixture, but uh, it's an obvious mixture. Afraid, yet filled with joy. On Friday, they'd watched the one they loved suffer so horribly. And as he died, their hopes died and their world crashed around them. And now on Sunday, here he is, the loving healer who'd, who'd commended despised women, who'd, who'd touched the untouchable lepers, who'd opened the eyes of the blind, and he's with them and he's alive. And his teachings of forgiveness and of God's fatherly care and of his own righteous and loving rule, they're all vindicated. They must be believed because he's alive. His death is no tragic failure now, they see. No, it's the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep and taking it up again. And so, of course, verse 8, they are filled with joy. Should we feel their joy? I hope that's obvious. I hope that's obvious from all that I've just said. In fact, let's just say the same things again, because he's our loving healer who's alive, because his teachings are so precious and now they're vindicated. Now they're believable. And his death is so necessary for us. And his resurrection proves it wasn't just a mistake. No, it was him laying down his life for his sheep, for the people he loves. Yes, of course, we should feel their joy. Now, those women and many other followers of Jesus, you can read on what came after in the book of Acts. And they went on to face difficulties and they went on to have, yes, a tough life in many ways. But they faced it with joy because their Jesus, their saviour was alive. There was a minister who recommended a plumber to his well-to-do aunt. He had an aunt who needed a plumber. He said, okay, I can recommend a plumber. He recommended a plumber to his well-to-do aunt. And after this plumber had worked for her for a while, she commented, that plumber, he always seems so cheerful. He always seems so happy. And the minister said, well, that's very interesting because that plumber was once so sad he was drinking two bottles of gin a day to try to drown his sorrows. Because his wife had left him. His life was very sad. But now he's so happy and he's so cheerful. You know why? Because he now knows Jesus. And I know he was happy and cheerful, that plumber. You know why? He was my dad. That plumber was my dad. And I know it was genuine. And I know it wasn't just a show put on for the well-to-do aunts, maybe to get a good pay from her. No, he was. And he had had a tough life. But he'd experienced Jesus is alive. Jesus is the saviour. And I'm telling you this because I want you to experience that joy. This isn't just, let's have a talk so you can go away and say, oh good, I know a bit about the women at Easter. No, that's not the aim. The aim is to know Jesus and experience his joy. I began by describing people who think Christianity is dead rituals. Just go and wearily sing some songs at church. Now, we have no interest in getting you involved in dead rituals, in getting you to join our club and sign up to our religion. No, our concern is you should discover 
sadness because of your sin. Don't cry for Jesus, he said. Cry for yourself. Because God's judgment of sin is dreadful. Sadness because of sin. Fear of God, the one who rules. But also joy. Joy, because you discover that Jesus who died for sinners is alive. And knowing him and being confident in him and relying on him is a living, heartfelt, joyful experience. And he invites you to that experience now. He invites you to put your trust in him now. Let's pray. Lord God, please don't allow this message to be to any of us just meaningless talk or or, or some nice religious idea. Please may the Holy Spirit persuade us that Jesus has risen. He is alive. Each of us will one day answer to him because his resurrection proves that he is the judge of the living and the dead. And so we pray that we would fear. We would have that right fear of God. And that right sadness over our own sins. But we pray we would have the joy of knowing him and confidence that his death was not a tragic failure, but the completion of your wonderful plan to save a people for yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing that we're not trusting in a religious system. We're not even trusting in a set of beliefs. We're trusting in a person, Jesus. And we're going to sing that now.